Welcome to the Super Abundant Life Podcast. I'm your host, Olaomi Brigway, a transformational life coach and the creator of Super Abundant Woman, where we are teaching and equipping women who have a burning desire for significance to create an exceptionally successful and fulfilling life without burnout or stress. In the not too distant past, I myself was trapped in an agonizing cycle of failure and shame with my mind constantly dominated by negative emotions. But my life was dramatically transformed beyond my wildest dreams when I began to live by the power and the wisdom of God's word. My mission is to teach others to experience the same. On the Super Abundant Life podcast, we have only one goal teach and empower Christians to take full advantage of their rights and privileges in Christ so they can build exceptionally successful lives. Thank you for tuning in. I'm so glad you're here. This is Olaomi and welcome back. Welcome to episode 49 of the Super Abundant Life podcast. Recently, just a few days ago, I sat down and I was sort of reflecting. I don't even know what brought it on. I think my husband and I were having a conversation and I started thinking back to my professional career and I realized, ah, wait, I only worked in four organizations. I think it's the fact that my husband was saying, we're talking and he's worked because obviously as a doctor different hospitals posted you know particularly early on in his career when he was in training he's lived or visited <laughs> so many parts of England that I've never been to so I think that what brought it on and then I thought about my own professional career I'm like ah <laughs> I've worked in four a total of four organizations over a 15-year period as I sat down so I used that as an opportunity to actually reflect on my professional career and one of the things one of the things that I was grateful to God for one of the things that I noted was that there was not a single organization where I was about to leave and they were like okay bye (laughs) but they went over and beyond and would look for different ways to convince me to stay right every single one and God is my witness if you're not self-aware, then you could, you know, see that and say, oh, I'm just the bomb. I'm, you know, <laughs> people just want me. People love me. No, but I knew that that was not the case. It wasn't like people just could not do without me. I knew it was nothing like that. So because I knew that, I began to think about why was that the case? What were the things that I was doing that made me indispensable to these organizations to the point that, it was always difficult for them to let me go. So I sat down and I thought about it, the growth or whatever it is, um, the principles that I learned that I then went and applied the things that God taught me, the corrections he told me to make over my 15 year professional career. I came up with a few points 
And then by studying and researching for this episode as well, I came across some that I didn't even know that I've now added to the list, which brings me to what we're talking about today. And he's very simply eight ways to make yourself indispensable at work. Eight ways to make yourself indispensable at work. And what I mean simply by that is you add so much value to that organization that when it's time for you to leave, they are fully supportive, obviously, of you and your career progression. It could go one of two ways. They could say, okay, you want to progress in your career. Listen, we'll offer you this promotion or this leadership responsibility and so on, or we'll increase your pay. Um, These are things that were offered to me, but it will get to the point as well where you're like, my time is just done here and I need to go. And if that's the case, they will send you off with goodwill. So I want every single person listening to me to get to the point where they are indispensable to their current organization so that even when it's time for them to leave, you are sent off with such pomp and pageantry (laughs) because you have literally invested so much in that organization, all right? As I always do, my signature is that my teachings are from the word of God. So I believe without a shadow of doubt that whatever leadership principle, whatever law of success that you may find out there, that you may read in books, books that will even tell you that God doesn't exist, everything came from the Bible. You you can find it literally in the Bible. So my own signature is I ask God and I say, show me, show me this in the Bible and he will always show me. All right. So these things that I'm going to be teaching today. So the eight ways to make yourself indispensable at work, I'm going to be teaching from the story of the man called Naaman. He's a very popular guy in the scripture. He was a army commander that was very successful, but then had leprosy. So this is second Kings chapter five. So I'm going to pretty much go through the whole chapter and then extract those eight principles or the eight ways that you can make yourself indispensable. And I'm sort of going to be switching from one character to the other. So there were points where Naaman was indispensable to his boss, the king. There were points where there was a slave girl that was indispensable to him, etc. So I'm going to use different characters and things that happen within that chapter to extract very clearly eight ways that you can make yourself indispensable to your employer in this year. Okay. All right, let's get started. So second Kings five, the text I'm reading is new living translation. The first one, and I put this one first to honestly, to get it out of the way, because it's the only one that people think they need to do in order to become indispensable. They think that once this one is ticked uh -uh, they're going to offer me promotions they're going to tell me uh, i'm going to increase your salary and all those things and it is simply this the first way to make yourself indispensable is to be exceptional at what you do to be exceptional at what you do but there's so much more people think that once i'm good at my job or exceptional at my job then that's the only thing i need for me to be indispensable no it's not There are so many people that are good, but they're not even recognized for what they're doing because they're not following some of the other laws that I'm going to be talking about today. So where did I see that in the Bible? So 2 Kings 5, 1 says, the king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army. Why? Because through him, 
the Lord had given Aram great victories. It says the reason why, so in this context, Naaman had a boss <laughs> called the king of Aram. And Bible says that the king, Naaman's boss, had great admiration. So it wasn't just, oh, you know, pat on the back, you're good at your job. Had great admiration, meaning he would look at this guy and be like, how can somebody be this good? That was, that's what it means. He, he just admired him greatly. And he probably wished, oh, I wish I could be like Naaman, you know, that kind of thing. And it was extremely valuable to him as well, because someone that is giving you a lot of victories against enemy kingdoms, you want to keep that person close to you. You want to keep them near you. You want to make sure that they're always working for you and not for the competition. Right. But the other thing I wanted to point out is this. Notice that it says God gave Naaman those great victories. Yes, be exceptional at what you do and increase your skills, gain knowledge, put yourself in a position where you continually learn and gain experience, etc. But I want to specifically mention here today, don't neglect your God factor. So many Christians separate the church and the state. What that means is, so you go to church and you pray in tongues and you, there's word of knowledge and gift of healing and all those things. But then once people walk out of the four walls of the building, they think that the influence of God in their lives has ended. So they don't feel like God can actually come and influence what they're doing in their workplace. And one of the things that I learned very early, and I think it's one of the greatest lessons I've learned in my life is that, listen, God wants to help you, you know, he wants to produce exceptional results through you that will make people's jaws drop. Like, ah, how are you getting these kind of results? Right? So engage your God factor, bring God into your situations. When people sort of think about bringing God into their workspace, they tend to only limit it to, oh, I want to pray for a better job. So I'm praying to God, Lord God, I need a better job. God, I need a promotion. God, I need more money. Give me a job that's paying more. So prayers along the give me, give me, give me. But what you should actually realize is the way you actually bring God into the work of your hands is by taking whatever you're working on to him in prayer. So you literally take your five loaves and two fish and take it to him and he will multiply to the point that people will stand up and will take notice. All right. Yes. Pray about promotion, pray about getting a new job that pays you more, etc. But I'm telling you that the quickest way <laughs> and the most spectacular way you can get that without ever praying for a, a job that pays high salary is to do what I'm telling you today. So whatever it is you're doing, whatever it is, take it to God in prayer. Even if you are not the team lead, even if you are the smallest person on the team that you are just there to take notes in a meeting, it doesn't matter. One of the things that I learned from my husband is you buy into the vision of whatever organization or a church or whatever. If you're in a space and you're part of it, you should buy into the vision. You should take it to God at the beginning of the year or when you start a new job and say, okay, God, this is the vision of the CEO of this com of this company. What is my own role? How can I interpret the vision in a way that will bring multiplication to the company? That was what Joseph did. So Joseph interpreted the vision of, of Pharaoh and as a result of that abundance came to Egypt. That's what we're supposed to do. 
Okay, so it's not just about praying for more money, praying for a better job. You can do that, but the quickest way, the guaranteed way that you get all those things without spending all your prayer time praying for them is to do this. Interpret the vision of the house in in a way that will bring abundance into you. And the only way you can do that is to take it up in prayer to God. So take projects that you're working on, your area of responsibility, and even the whole company, lift it up to God in prayer. Ask God to multiply, ask God to give divine ideas that will bring increase into that organization. Let God bring out great victories through you into that place. The same way uh, it happened for Naaman. So the first one is to be exceptional at what you do, but not just to be exceptional absent of God, whereby you're just using your brain. You're spending 14 hours working so that you can be exceptional. It doesn't need to be hard. It doesn't need to be hard. When you tap into the miraculous, things become easy. And I'm speaking from experience. I've shared this before on the podcast that literally when I started my career, I had a baby. My daughter was three months old when I went into my professional career. So I, I couldn't hang about because the nanny would close and I needed to go and pick her. So I couldn't be there till seven or eight as the other young teachers were doing. I simply did not have the luxury. But my results was always much more than everybody's because when I get home in my prayer time, I say, okay, God, how will these children, you know, excel and get the best results, the best they can possibly get? And I'll pray and I'll receive teaching strategies, et cetera, et cetera. All right. So that is what I mean. Involve God so that he can produce exceptional results through you that will astound your world. Number two is this, and I'm going to read this first. So if it tells us in verse one, that Naaman was a mighty warrior, but he also suffered from leprosy. So he was a leper. Okay. Uh, I could do a whole podcast on that, <laughs> but that's not what we're focusing on today. So verse two says at this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel and among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a mate. It should really read as a slave because she was not a maid that was being paid. She was a slave. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. And the second principle that you can apply to make yourself indispensable in your workplace is this genuinely care about the progress or the well-being of your employer or your organization don't be one of those people that only goes there to collect salary and then once you walk out that's it you don't even think about the place again onto your back right don't be one of those people. Don't be one of those people where money is your only motivation for being in a place. Because number one, you'll be miserable. You will be miserable because you're spending, how many hours do we spend at work? All right. Like, um, on average eight hours, some people spend more, some spend less eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, going to a place where the only motivation you have for going there is money. That's a pretty miserable life. So don't allow yourself to get to the point where that is your only motivation. Now you say to me, but it's not, it's not my ideal job. It's not what I really want to do. You know, I just, I, this is, this is like a stepping stone to where I would really get the one that I'm passionate about. 
etc. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so I was prepared for you. <laughs> this girl, remember, was a slave. She was, a, when she said my master, she literally meant my master. Naaman was her master. Naaman owned her. She was a slave. There's, you know, there's no situation that can be less ideal than that. She was a slave. She was even there against her will. She was probably never going to see her family again. At least you, you come, they even pay you. You get salary. You get, you get to go home and see your family at the end of the day. So no matter how far from ideal the job is, it doesn't matter. It is not an excuse to only be going there to collect money. Right? That thing, that sort of attitude does something to the soul of a person. And if you if you honestly have convinced yourself that when I get the job that I'm really passionate about, I'm going to do it well and I'm going to plug in, it's not true. Because even if you get that job, what you have been doing has now become a habit. It is now a habit. Your brain has now been configured to the point that it says when we are in a working environment, we just do the work half-heartedly. You have trained your brain into that space so that even when you find a job that you absolutely love, give it two weeks and your brain just enters into that habit again and you find yourself just dissatisfied and just wanting, looking at the clock and wanting to rush out of there when it's five o'clock. So if you're there now, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to give you the grace to be able to make adjustments in your attitude towards there. This little girl was a slave. She was a slave. Rather than be filled with bitterness or to zone out, right? She cared deeply about the people in her, in her quote-unquote organization, her employer, the person that owned her. And the Bible doesn't say anything about Naaman, but if you put it in context, those guys in those days, they were merciless. Oh, they weren't like, you know, hush puppy, very nice, an employer that will come and give you cake, cookie and cream and whatever. So thank you for doing a wonderful job. They were harsh, right? You know, they, they there was very little value for human life. The way they would just behead somebody and, you know, remove somebody's tongue very little value for human life so i can imagine him being a hard man a hard man all right and guess you know the kind of job that he did he was a commander of the army he was a hard man the bible doesn't say that but in context if we let our imaginations run but this girl didn't allow that she had compassion regardless of what her circumstance was she had compassion for her employer for the organization so you go to work and you know, you have so many reasons to complain. Nobody's saying that you don't have reasons to complain. You have every reason to complain. Uh, nothing is working. They're not listening. Everybody's just doing their own thing. And there's, you know, it's anarchy. But you are the light of God in that place. Light shines where there's darkness. Light shines where there's darkness. If you have a torchlight and it is noon, the sun is high in the sky and you come out and you, f you flash your torchlight, nobody's going to see. You will not notice it. But come into a house as dark, everyone that needs light will be gravitated to you. So instead of looking at the darkness and complaining about the organization, why not begin to see yourself as light? And now, you know, throughout all of this, I'll use my own example. The second to the last group that I worked in, oh my, maybe I was looking for a challenge. I left, a, I left my second school 
Um, and I was just like, listen, this, I can do this job in my sleep. You know where all the kids now, they now know you, everybody respects you. Or nobody, none of the children could, you only need to look at them once. The whole assembly hall of children, you're walking and they're silent. Johnstown, I'm like, ah, this, this is, I need a challenge. So <laughs> they said, stay. I said, I'm not staying. I need a challenge. I went to the place where, hmm, there was a challenge. The first few weeks I was like, who sent me? Oh, who sent me here? Ah, as in, I was so frustrated. The entire setup, and I'm not just talking, I, I didn't, you know, dealing with rude children and disobedient, that one, you know, because I had years of experience, it wasn't really the issue. But this was the first time that I was working in an organization where micromanagement was at its, at its peak. As in, they wanted, they, there was no freedom. You were literally tied up. And I'm like, I'm a leader here. So I literally have to, you know, bureaucracy, you meetings and meetings. Are, I spent all my time in meetings and meetings. I'm like, what, what? I'm a teacher. Oh. Why am I in meetings and meetings? I didn't take this job. So I was, I was miserable. But I would tell you that, listen, even in that place, again, within, in fact, within two or three months, I took my house. So I, um, um, I don't want to go into all that, but basically the area that I was responsible for, I took them to the, to the highest. So they, they had points in terms of performance and all those. And they were like at the bottom. When I took the job out, they were at the bottom within the first half term, which was, I think eight weeks, they were at the top. And this was the place where to get up in the morning and go down. Oh God, who said this, this place? Yet, I was like, listen, no matter how dark it is, I am light. So that is what I'm saying. Don't use your mouth to start complaining and joining them because you are now part of the darkness. You will never stand out. All right? You will never stand out. So the servant girl or the slave girl was in a dark place, but she still allowed compassion to rule her. And she said, I wish my master would go and see the prophet. If she was a wicked person, if she was someone that was allowing herself to only see the darkness, she would never have told, you know, what she, uh, Naaman. She would never have shown the way, she said, you this wicked man. I hope you die with that leprosy and your children to catch the leprosy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. But she allowed the compassion of God, the light of God to shine through her. So she became, imagine after, we all know the story, so I can tell you that Naaman ended up healed. Do you think, what do you think he would do to that girl? All right. Just imagine it because that was the one thing with all the money he had, with all the influence and the position and all that and the wealth, he couldn't cure himself. So she was forever invaluable to him as a result of taking that step. Let's move on. Number three, I read second Kings five, three, it says, so I repeat, that says one day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go to see the prophet in Samaria. Who did she tell? She told her mistress. She didn't go straight to Naaman. She told her mistress the direct line of command. She, even though the message was for Naaman, she told who? She told her mistress. And number three is this. Don't care about who gets the credit. Don't care about who gets the credit. What do I mean by that? You see, what I've noticed, you know, um, from my own experience as a leader and also from, from life experience as well, I'm, I've made that mistake 
I've made the mistake and I've seen other people make that mistake. What I've noticed is that some people sabotage their chances of making progress or promotion or whatever it is because they only want to share all their good ideas with the quote unquote boss or the most influential person in the room. Even though there are multiple layers of accountability separating them and that person. So they have a good idea. They have a head of department. They won't tell the head of department. They'll go and look for maybe group head or somebody. Why? Because they want a seat at the table. So they bypass everyone and then just go straight there. The slave girl could have basically seen that information as her own ticket out of slavery. And as a result of that, she would have basically said, listen, I'm not going to tell my madam. <laughs> I'm going to go and tell Oga. And I don't know what could have happened to her because number one, the audacity. So remember, she's a slave. The audacity. Nema would say, who are you? How dare you come into my presence? Go and behead her, which is very, very possible. Not an exaggeration at all. But she told it to someone. And this is what I'm really saying. The wife of Naaman could just have said, I heard it from somewhere. She didn't even have to mention the slave girl because the Bible doesn't even say how just says that Naaman then told the king. So obviously the wife told Naaman, but she could have completely left that girl's name out. That's what I'm saying. Don't be motivated by, oh, I want to make sure that I get the credit. And as a result of that, I want to be the one that would tell the boss myself so that he will say, oh, good job. What's your name again? And then he will note your name and say, oh, wonderful, wonderful. And then the next time you have an idea, you bypass your line manager and you go straight. <laughs> That's dangerous, okay? It's dangerous because what I've noticed is most leaders will tell you that people who are always bypassing established leadership lines to pitch or to complain to a senior leader, these kind of people are perceived as schemers, all right? They're perceived as schemers. They're seen as people that are only interested in themselves. And because the truth is no matter how much you spin it, if you are cutting out your direct lead, you will be seen as someone who is not a team player. So it's going to actually affect you negatively in the long run. You might think, oh, the CEO now knows my name because, you know, I went and pitched this idea to him. That's even if you get to him. So if you found a way to scheme and then get to the point where you're speaking to the CEO, he's marked you. Honestly, this is from my own experience, right? Um, in leadership, from le reading leadership books, from talking to leaders. The, that person has marked you that ah, this one's not a team player. What happened? In fact, what could even happen is the CEO will now call the head of your department or group head and say, ah, this person came to me and they'll be talking behind your back and they'll be saying, ah, why is he? <laughs> so don't do it all. And the reason why you will not do that is because you will not care who gets the credit. You don't care who gets the credit as long as the, the organization moves forward, whether you get the credit or not doesn't matter to you. And you know that God who sees in secret will reward you openly. If men do not reward you, don't even lose sleep over it because God has seen it and he by himself will bring you reward. Okay. Now, obviously I needed to say this, there are exceptions to that rule. Okay. There are exceptions to that principle. There are occasions or times where the person that is your direct lead is not really someone that cooperates. He sh shoots down everybody's ideas. Uh, he doesn't listen. He never listens. If, for example, 
the project is in serious jeopardy and you know that if you don't say something the company is going to lose for example millions of pounds i don't know whatever it is so there might be except i don't even know if in that situation is even right to, to bypass them i don't know uh, but personally if you go by the rule that don't care who gets the credit so if you have a brilliant idea give it to your department head they may reject him and say that's nonsense but trust me that idea will speak it will find a way to speak and they will they might not come back and apologize for rubbishing your idea in the first place but you you know you've done your part so let's you know just present it give it as a gift to the team and the lord who sees in secret will reward you openly and as i said people tend to mark people like that as schemers and people that are not team players so you want to avoid that number four so let's move on number four I'm going to read from the Bible again and then come and, you know, state what number four is. So verse four, uh, I'm reading 46. It says, so Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. So he went to his boss. Okay. So he immediately took that information or the help that he needed and he went to his boss. I will send him. So the king said, I will send a letter of introduction for you to take it to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying as gifts 750 pounds of silver. The guy was loaded, man. 150 pounds of gold and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, With this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Now, this number four, this fourth principle that will help you become indispensable in your organization, particularly to maybe your boss or the CEO or people generally, people that hire and fire, <laughs> is this. Now, I'm going to make the statement and then explain what I mean so that people don't misunderstand me. And it is this, to expose your vulnerability in whatever, you know, in your personal life. So in personal matters, don't come across as someone who is perfect and never needs help. Okay. So expose your vulnerability in personal matters. What do I mean by that? So I need to explain this for you to understand what I am saying. See, people love being asked for advice. Did you know that? People love being asked for advice. Now I'm not, let me, let me, <laughs> let me be clear. This was not work-related. This was a personal matter. It was a personal issue that Naaman was dealing with. So it wasn't like his boss, King of Aram, said, okay, go and conquer this kingdom. And then he now come and say, hey, so what do you think I should do? Hey, so I tried this. No, no, don't do that too because people find it annoying. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. So Naaman was exceptional in his work. He was, if he was told to go and do something, he came back with exceptional results. So this is not work related. It was not related to his work, but in his personal life, he was going through something. All right. So, but in spite of that, he was still crushing it. Even with his personal issues, Naaman was still being exceptional in his job. So I'm not talking about where people will use personal challenges as a crutch to underperform. I'm not talking about that, not even remotely. He had already demonstrated excellence at his job. 
regardless of what he was going through in his personal life. But what, here's what I'm saying. And I'm going to give you an example because remember, I sat down and I meditated on the, my 15-year career. And I saw an example more than once, actually, of this. He had demonstrated excellence. Well taken. But what endeared him even further to the king was the fact that he had come to him for help. Now, here's a secret. Here's a secret. If a top performer, all right, in your organization, your employer is always looking for opportunities and ways to invest in you over and beyond the call of duty, right? So that you can feel more connected to the company and you won't want to leave. That is actually a leadership principle. So your A-game players, if they are absolutely killing it for you, it is a leadership principle that you find a way to connect with them beyond work, something that ties them in so that they would not readily leave you. It's a leadership principle. So when the king had that opportunity, I'm sure he was elated. He was like, okay, what can I do to help? So he, he wrote a letter and I, I have a feeling that all those things that Naaman was going to go and give, maybe the king even contributed to it and gave him some of it. He said, listen, just go. I want you to sort out your personal life. I'm for you. I'm standing with you and all those things that people say, right? So you ask for help when you need it. Expose your vulnerability. If someone is going through something in their personal life, you don't want to come to work and just put on a mask. People think, oh, if I show them that I'm going through this, they'll think I can't do my job. But remember, you've already demonstrated that in spite of what you're going through, you're still killing it at work. That actually makes them respect you even more because they're like, ah, this person is going through this. And they're still delivering. They're not complaining. They're not, you know, making it seem as if, oh, because of this, I can't do this. Trust me, when you now open up to them, they see you in a different light. They want to help you. And the empathy kicks in. So it will endear them to you. And remember, if you, if someone has an emotional connection with you, it makes it more difficult for them to, if they say they're downsizing, you will not be the first person on the list. Because you're doing well and then there's an emotional connection. So there's been a, a human to human connection. It's not just about the work. I'll give you an example from my own career. There was, you know, a time many years ago when I had to take time off work because Maxine was going to have an operation on her eye and, you know, was going to be general. She'll be put to sleep and I, I needed to take a few days off work uh, for her recovery and all those things. So I went to speak to, to the head about taking time off. And if you, I've said this before, the teaching prof, um, profession is quite inflexible. You can't just go like that because you can't work from home. <laughs> so you had to be on site and all this. So I was feeling bad that I had to take that time off because I knew that it would not be easy to get somebody in to do my job and all that. So I, but I was like, ah, I'm, she's, I'm the only person Maxine has, so I need to go and take time. So I went to him and um, the policy actually at, at the time in that organization was if you're taking time like that off to care for someone, then you could, but it will be without pay. But I remember something. I remember clearly that when I went to him and I showed him the, the letter from the hospital, he looked at it and I said, I need, could I please have a few days off unpaid so that I could look after my daughter and everything. He was like, absolutely. Do you know, he got up. He personally walked with me to HR 
And then guess what? He asked them, he said, she needs to take this time off. Please approve it, even extended the days. Approve it with pay. He said, approve it. Give her all the time she needs with pay. It was as if he was so grateful for the opportunity to be of service to me because I had been delivering exceptional results. I had been putting myself, pouring myself into that organization and he knew it and he knew it. So it was like, oh, something I can actually do for her. He, he took it personally. He was like, yes, you know, absolutely. You can go and don't worry about anything. We'll make sure it's sorted. And I'm not talking about somebody this is what i'm trying to say this person i'm describing he was not like some mushy mushy person he was a tough person right he was tough as in he normally he would not have done that he was a tough person he was very principled i i greatly admired him till today very principled person so he wasn't like mushy emotional oh i just want to help i know it was nothing like that but i noticed by thinking about it that he wanted an opportunity you know to be able to help me on a personal level that had nothing to do with work and what i also noticed was after that there was a deeper connection between us like human to human not just like robot to robot as in okay work 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 because the personal thing had entered because I had a personal issue that he was able to help me solve. We connected on the emotional or human level when we now became human beings to each other, not just targets, <laughs> not just, Oh, these are the work targets. Go and achieve it. We became human beings to each other. All right. And that's the school that when I was going to leave, in fact, it took me almost two years to eventually leave because every time I said I wanted to leave, he would, he would just basically, you know, give me higher level responsibilities and say, no, you, I, I really need you to take this on. I re- he kept adding, I said, until I put my foot down, I said, I need to go. So can you see? And I believe that one of those reasons why eventually became like that was there was a deeper connection on the personal level. So that it's not just about work right? So number five, let's move on. Number five, I'll read verses seven and eight says, when the King of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I God (laughs) that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. So the King of Israel receives the letter from, um, Naaman's boss. and like this guy, his motive, his ulterior motive is really to come and go to war with us. How am I supposed to heal somebody of leprosy? And the guy started complaining and he went into depression. He tore his clothes and all those things, right? Let me keep reading. But when Elisha, the man of God heard that the King of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent his message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me and he will learn that there's a true prophet here in Israel. So number five is embrace problems that others are complaining about or running away from. If you want to be indispensable in your organization, embrace problems that others are complaining about or running away from. In fact, I believe that one is one of the quickest ways to rise to the top. This particular one specifically is what allowed me to rise as quickly as I did in my career. And this is what I mean. And it, I didn't choose it all. In fact, I can't take credit for it because for some reason I would show up in a new school and then they would give me like the, the, the 
the worst set of classes or something that nobody wanted as a newbie, as a newbie. So all the ones that have been there for a long time, they'll take all the nice, you know, cushy A-level classes and all the nice kids top set and then they'll come and load you up with bottom set. The kids I don't even want to learn as early as 12 are telling you, miss, I don't want to be here. (laughs) What do you do with that? So it wasn't even by choice, but this is what I realized that it is probably the one principle that has worked out the best for me in my career. It was taking something that was difficult. I gave the example of the second to last school that I worked in one of the most difficult periods in my professional career. But I also achieved the greatest result, impact in the shortest amount of time. So if you are the kind of person that is resilient, if you see opportunity in trouble, you will go far. You will become indispensable because what other people are running away from, you embrace it. You take it with the help of God. You produce results. They will keep saying, ah, this is a problem solver, not just any kind of problem solver, but the kind of problems that people don't want to touch. Okay, that will definitely set you apart. And there's so many examples. I'll give you just one example. So when I went into middle leadership for the first time, I became a head of year. And this was probably the third year of my teaching career. So I was fairly new, okay, in teaching. And then I was now a middle middle leader. I was a head of year. And head of year means you are responsible for the pastoral well-being of approximately 200 students and then you had your own team that you worked with of teachers etc so i became a head of year and guess what as soon as i was appointed for that role ofsted showed up (laughs) so ofsted is the governing body is it governing body that i'll call it regulatory that's what the regulatory body of schools in england so they will come and they'll visit your school and then they'll give you a rating or whatever it is areas of improvement or whatever so they came this is me i was newly in fact it was a year year eight group so i was head of year eight uh i was newly appointed i was literally like a week in the job after showed up and in almost every class every that Ofsted lessons department rather so they went to the science department observe lessons year eight students were highlighted as being the most destructive they went to maths year eight they went to english year eight they as in all around the school even in the playground (laughs) even in the playground they were particularly singled out as the most badly behaved and disruptive students in the whole school hey jesus i said what have i done (laughs) Who sent me? <laughs> Who sent me? But to be honest, even though that was like the initial reaction, something inside me was just stubborn enough to say, no, this is my opportunity. No, these kids, uh-uh, they are, they are throwing their education away. And the compassion rose up within me. And straight away, as soon as the Ofsted report landed, I began to put a plan in place straight away. In fact, I, as I'm talking now, I'm remembering the audacity. I was young. I was very, I was literally, I was a young teacher that, that had been given that role. But I came, I went to God, I said, God, I need ideas. And these children, I need to sort them out. I went to God and I began to, you know, get ideas and I wrote, you know, a plan. By the next day, I had gone and presented it to the head and said, this is what we need to do. And he was, he had this huge grin on his face, like, who is this girl? 
He was so proud of me. I could tell it was written all over his face. And he backed me 100%. And I began to put those things in place. If I called it, I called the meeting of all the parents. I, I said, get in here. <laughs> I called, I said, all the parents. I said, I wrote them a letter. I said, I want to have a meeting with you. And I did all that. He was there at every meeting. And honestly, true to God, before the end of that year, if I don't even think it stretched the whole year, they were one of the best behaved students in school. And I, and I ended in, and I took that year group through for another two or three years before I think they passed on to sixth form or something. And by the time they were leaving, as in a lot, they were, they had been so successful that in the history and a lot of these things, people might think I'm lying, but God is my witness. Okay. In the history of the school, the results they achieved was the best was the best in the history of school that had been there for, I don't know how long, a long time from the worst behaved. And my entire professional career is littered with stories like that. That was just one that I just decided to share littered in the place of pressure. Diamond always comes out. If you embrace problems that others are complaining about, there is no better way to distinguish yourself in an organization. Okay, I have three more very quickly. Number six, number six. Now this one I found particularly interesting. I'll read from verse nine. It says nine to 12, Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elijah's house. But Elijah sent a messenger out to him with his message, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would suddenly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers in Damascus, the Abana and Fafa, better than any of the rivers in Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. Now, I like to always look at things from two different perspectives. Whenever the story of Naaman is taught, people just look at him as some arrogant guy. I mean, a prophet of God is telling you to go and dip in the river and you're like, eh, me, I'm not dipping in any river, right? We see from only the perspective of Elisha. But I always like to turn around and see from the other person's perspective. So if you actually look from Naaman's perspective, he probably was justified in what he was saying. Why do I say that? probably the prophet in his own country, if he went to them for anything, that is how they would have responded to him. So in his own homeland, in his own culture, where he was probably second in command to the king, every time he walked into a place, people treated him that way. And he had come to expect to be treated that way in his own culture. But the problem now is, he was no longer in Aram. He was now in Israel, a completely different culture. Elisha was not one of the prophets of the gods in his own country. Elisha was a prophet of God. And there was no way. And one of the particular things about the Israelites was you don't bow. You don't make graven images. So you don't bow before a man. All right. A prophet of God would not have bowed before him and say, oh, oh, king, oh, king. Did you see the way? In the Bible, prophets talk to kings. Like, don't say the Lord. They'll even be pointing their finger in their face. So it's a completely different 
culture, but he didn't understand that. He did not understand that. And as a result of that, he got offended. So number six is respect other people's rules. Respect other people's rules. If you go to another part of the organization, another department, and they do things differently, understand the culture. Understand the culture. If you want to be someone that is indispensable to your organization, don't go and cause disruption. Don't go and bring your own ideas into another culture and say, it must be done this way. I mean, what right have you to do that? So what Naaman really should have done, what he should have been willing to do was to observe and say, oh, how did they do things here? And after observing, then try and adapt himself to that culture as best as he could. So if he had asked around that, okay, this God of Israel, what's he like? As in how did his you know, prophets relate with people. He would have known that a prophet of God would not bow before any man, not even before a king, because they saw themselves as representatives of God and the kings even bowed before them. All right. Samuel anointed the first ever King Saul and Saul was subject to, to Samuel. That was the correct order. But where he was coming from, the prophets of the gods served the king and the king was Lord and master over them. All right. I hope that makes sense. So he should have made his research to say, how is it in this place? Then he would not have been offended when Elisha behaved that way because he'll understand that. Oh, okay. So this is how things are done here. That kind of thing, not being self-aware and really the key skill here is self-awareness where people are not aware of the environment and they just go and do things. Anyhow, the only way they see fit, it causes problem. People will avoid you. Because you will just be causing problems everywhere you go and people will avoid you. All right. Number seven, I'll read very quickly. Verse 13 and 14 says, but his officers tried to reason with Naaman and said, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says, simply go and wash and be cured. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child and he was healed. Okay. Now, what am I going to point out here? Number seven is this. Speak up. Speak up when you have a valid, a helpful or a valuable opinion, even if the opinion is you're sharing it with people that are your leaders, people that are ahead of you, whatever it is. When Naaman was being foolish because he was not self-aware, he hadn't done his research, he was going to walk away from his healing. And they saw that he was clearly wrong. His servants spoke up. They said, ah, no, this is not the right thing to do. Why don't you think about it this way? And they presented another perspective. They spoke up. If they had not spoken up, they would have all gone back home with a leprous Naaman. The rest of his life, he would have remained that way. Right? So when you know someone is clearly on the wrong path, like a leader, someone that's ahead of you, don't be afraid to speak up. All right. Now, I'm not talking about the people who are always wanting to share an opinion. So they always have an opinion that everybody must hear. Before you say two sentences, they're like, well, um, excuse me. And they're wanting to No, that's not what I'm talking about because that's annoying. That's annoying. Number one. And it's also a symptom of someone who is not teachable because if you're always talking, you don't hear, 
you should listen twice as much as you speak because when you're speaking, you're not learning. So that's not what I'm referring to. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about on occasion where you know inside you that this thing, I have an idea or I have something to say, I have an opinion, right? Don't worry about whether they accept it or not. You just do your part and present it. They can reject it. It's fine. Okay. What's the worst that can happen? They'll reject your advice. Fine, move on. Say, I did my part. The same way if the servants of Naaman had told him and he had said, no, rubbish, let's go back. Well, they told him. And what is the best that could happen? It could end up being what brings phenomenal growth into that company. The same way what they told Naaman ended up being what saved his life. So speak up. And the final one, I'm going to read verse 15 to wrap this up. It says, then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God, which is Elisha. They stood before him and Naaman said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. And Naaman even went on to swear to Elisha that I will never bow before any God except the the Lord, the God of Israel. And even said, please pray to the Lord to please have mercy on me so that if my king is going to worship his own God and he wants to lean on my hand, that I'm just going, you know, because he's going and I can't say no, that God should not, you know, he should have mercy on me. But by choice, I will never bow before any other God but the Lord, the God of Israel. So what is my number eight? If you want to endear yourself, you want, if you want to be invaluable, indispensable to your organization, be the kind of person that brings new business in. Now, what do I mean by that? How did Elisha make himself indispensable to God? Remember I said, I will look at different characters and how they were indispensable to their boss. Um, God was Elisha's boss. How did Elisha make himself indispensable to God in that situation? He won Naaman from the gods that were not gods over to God. So he brought in new business for God, quote and unquote. All right. If you want to put it in context, the most valuable employees are those that contribute to their organization's bottom line. So now you might say, I'm not in sales department, but how can you, by doing your best in whatever it is you do, how can that result in expanding the business and bringing money or whatever it is into the business? Because the truth of the matter is cash is king. If new business isn't coming in, you have no business, period. No matter how good your intention is. And I'm, you know, you might say, oh, but you are a teacher. I'm telling you, why do we think, why do you think schools hold open evenings? They want, because if you are undersubscribed, the government pays schools based on the number of students they have, right? So if they don't meet the quota of what the building can take, that means less staff, less facilities and all that. So you, you know, you have to do open evenings. You have to, every teacher needs to get involved in open. If you can't say, I can't come. If, it's, if they put it on a Saturday, you have to be there because it contributes to the bottom line of that organization. That's what I'm saying. How can you position yourself that you are contributing to the bottom line of your organization? Okay. How are you making the business grow or expand in terms of business, in terms of money? Okay. That is number eight. (laughs) And that's me done. Those are eight principles that you can apply 
that by the grace of God will make you indispensable. I don't even think you need to apply all of them. I did not apply all of them. I even learned some as I was researching and preparing for this episode. But read through the eight and think from where I am now, where I'm standing, which of these can I definitely begin to apply this year, 2020, that will make me indispensable to my organization. And it could result in the fact that they promote you, they increase your salary, or if you want to leave, they send you off with such goodwill or recommend you to another place. That would, so it, it, it will open so many doors for you. All right. Thank you so much for listening and I will be back next week. Bye.